Well, hello, 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 everybody. Uh, this is a very special space. And thank you for being here. Um, Brother Gad is with us. Um, I think I will mute you first. And then we will talk later. <laughs> I just want to invite, I want to uh, greet everybody. And uh, I'm honored to have our guests here uh, Professor Gad Sad, I have known him for years, and he hosted me one time, long time ago. He's an author, and he's a professor. He's also um, uh, a guest speaker on many uh, shows and podcasts and different uh, places on universities, campuses. And he is also related um, to what's going on right now because of his background. He is of a Jewish Lebanese background, so he can speak uh, to what's happening right now in the Middle East and in the West. So I just want um, to welcome uh, Professor Gatsad. Ahlan Bik. Alan, كيف كيف صحتك شكرا. You still know Arabic, huh? <laughs> of course, I know Arabic. I speak Arabic at home. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, I'm honored to have you here with with us, and thank you for uh, accepting the invitation. It's an honor for me. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's been too long since we last spoke to each other, so I'll need to invite you back on the show soon. Yes, I would love to. So let's uh, let's start. It's uh, it's crazy what's going on, and uh, I just want to, probably many people do not know your story. I want you to share a little bit of your background and how you left Lebanon and uh, being a Jew, Lebanese. Uh, how did it go for you and why you left Lebanon? Right. Uh, well, hello to everybody who's here. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I was born in Lebanon. Uh, grew up in Lebanon. So, of course, uh, Arabic is my mother tongue. We were part of the last remaining very small group of Jews that had stayed in Lebanon. Most of my extended family uh, had left before the start of the Lebanese Civil War, which started in 1975. But we doggedly refused to leave. We thought that, you know, we're Lebanese, we're going to stay. But then once the Unfortunately, the Lebanese Civil War began. It, it became impossible to be Jewish in Lebanon. And so we left the first year of the war. Uh, my parents returned to Lebanon on a few occasions uh, after we had emigrated to Canada. One of their, on one of their return trips in 1980, they were kidnapped by uh, Fatah, one of mm. the PLO militia groups and some really... Bad things happened, uh, but then luckily they weren't executed. So once they left in 1980, no one in my family has gone back. Uh, how was it generally growing up in Lebanon? Well, you know, uh, anti-Semitism, as you know, Brother Rashid, is something that uh, is the renewable energy source in the Middle East. So even in the context of, quote, progressive and tolerant Lebanon, uh, there was always anti-Semitism and Jew hatred. Now, that doesn't mean that you couldn't go about your daily life, but you knew that, you know, any day things can go badly. So I'll just share 
maybe a couple of stories if I ma- if I can, and then I'll yeah. back to you. So when I was sure. five, when I was five years old in uh, Lebanon, uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was the president of Egypt at the time, a pan Arabist, had just passed away. Uh, and as often happens in the Middle East, people take to the street, they start lamenting, screaming, and shouting. And as I was sitting on the balcony of our of our house, the, there was this huge procession of protesters coming down the street, and all I could hear was death to Jews, death to Jews. And then my mother comes and kind of takes me inside, says, you know, come inside, it's too dangerous. And I remember that was the first time where I kind of wondered, what, why are they screaming death to Jews? What, what does the death of the, Lebanese, of the Egyptian president have to do with us? Why, why do they want to kill us? The mm-hmm. second quick story was I was about eight or nine years old, and the teacher uh, asked every student in the class to get up and say, what do they want to be when they grow up? So somebody gets up, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a policeman, I want to be a soccer player. And then uh, one of the kids, who was a friend of mine, I played soccer with him, got up and said, when I, want, when I grow up, I want to be a Jew killer. And everybody laughed and clapped. So that's story number two. Yeah. And, uh, story number three, when, uh, we were, when we left Lebanon, the day that we left Lebanon, uh, uh, when we got into the plane heading towards uh, Montreal through Copenhagen, as we cleared the airspace of Lebanon, the pilot said, we are now outside of Lebanese airspace. So my mother put a uh, pendant around my neck, uh, you know, with a like Star of David high, like a sign of life, like a Jewish sign. And she said, now you can wear this, uh, be proud and not hide your identity. So even... When people think of so-called the Paris of the Middle East and progressive Lebanon, there was always Jew hatred everywhere. Well, that's that's uh, really uh, very moving stories, and I don't know, I, I I don't know how you you still feel as as events are happening right now, and probably brings to memories. Uh, I just uh, let me. Let, I, th- I think muting the mic will help because there's an echo in the background. Um, so uh, I want to move to what's happening right now because, uh, as you see, there is a rise of anti-Semitism everywhere in uh, campuses, in the streets. Just last night, uh, somebody uh, died in L.A., uh, a, a man named uh, Paul Kessler, he's a Jew, and he he was uh, hit on his head and he died. And um, there there are many incidents. Somebody died. Uh, I think a lady in Michigan, uh, another person in Paris. So it's in Europe, in in uh, America, everywhere. I saw uh, protests in in, Austra- in Australia, in Sydney, and they're. They are shouting gas the Jews. So how do you feel as this uh, rise of anti-Semitism around us right now related to the war in the Middle East? Uh, thanks for that question. Uh, well, it's in a sense, it's even, I, mean, I don't want to say it's scarier than growing up in Lebanon. The, the difference is that the amount of Jew hatred that I'm exposed to because of social media makes it seem as though it's in every corner of every millimeter, right? Because 
you know, yeah. when you're growing up in Lebanon in the 1970s, yes, of course, there's Jew hatred everywhere, but I, I can't go on Twitter and have, you know, 75,000 messages of incredible Jew hatred. And so it's it's uniquely challenging in today's environment where the the spread of the hate can happen so quickly and so forcefully. It's like a tsunami of hate. The other thing mm. I would say that's unique uh, to the current situation that maybe was different uh, in growing up in the Middle East. When I was growing up in the Middle East, the the source of the hate, you know, is coming from the dynamics of the Middle East, largely from Islamic sources, but of course also, you know, some Christian Lebanese were very uh, anti-Semitic. Whereas now you have completely different groups that are united in their commitment to Jew hatred. So you've got, of course, the Islamic mm. forces. You've got the progressive leftists from universities, the you know the, the students and the professors from the Near East Studies programs, all of whom are you know shouting all kinds of Jew hatred stuff. And then you've got the super ultra right wing guys, the neo Nazis and the white nationalists that are also yeah. coming at me with their hatred. So everywhere I turn, there's someone from a different camp, but they are equally committed to hating the Jew. Well, how how do you explain it? Why, why it's it's rising right now, and, and, and it's everywhere, as you said. And what does it have to do with the war between Israel and, and Hamas? Right. Well, uh, all that's happened is that we've created the environment that condones the Jew hatred. So I don't think it's something that's somehow magically came about starting October 7th. But there is a, a, a match that you light and that match then ignites something that already was there and dormant, right? So, for example, yeah. I, I mean, now it's kind of difficult for me to have conversations in Arabic with people uh, who don't know who, like many people know who I am, so they won't tell me what they think of the Jew. But growing up, even in Montreal, when I would be meeting with, you know, people who who spoke Arabic but didn't know that I was Jewish, the kind of insanity that I would hear about the Jew. I mean, if you say, hello, how are you? Kill the Jew. It's sunny outside, kill the Jew. It's raining outside, kill the Jew, right? So so I don't think that the Jew hatred is something that is unique to today. What's regrettable is that in the West, it is now no longer necessary to hide that hatred, right? So for example, if you think about hatred's that people might have towards black people. Well, the society has sufficiently evolved that you won't be welcomed in polite society if you say the N-word, right? People expect you to not do yeah. that way. Well, now it is perfectly okay to go on Twitter, even people who are not anonymous, who are coming at me with their full name and they feel fully secure in sharing what they think of the Jew. It's, it's unbelievable, Rashid. Yeah, um, how how do you explain that even people who, uh, I mean, young younger generations in in campuses, in schools, in 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 different places, and and they share the same thing? Is it is it contagious? Is it like some? You, I I know you teach psychology and uh, marketing psychology. I think, um, as I remember from your book. <laughs> and, evolutionary um, psychology, consumer psychology, yes. Uh, consumer psychology. So uh, I'm sure there is there is a, an explanation why people are, are, are 
like I see young young kids like just high schoolers and 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 they they also share the same hatred towards Jews. They had no experience, uh, firsthand experience with Jews. Right. Well, look. Uh, one. So let me bring an example from consumer psychology, and then I'll it'll, it'll hopefully answer your question. One of the reasons why there are laws in terms of what is the minimal age at which you can advertise to children, it's because the the the, the psychological mechanism is that you shouldn't be able to target children with advertisements when the children don't know that you're trying to persuade them to buy something, right? So if they are below an age where you can do that, then the argument is that it is morally and ethically inappropriate to be targeting children. Okay, so now remember that, what I just said. Now, but imagine if on the one hand, I say I can't sell you chewing gum and I can't sell you candy because it's immoral to do so because you're only nine years old. But on the other hand, when you come out straight out of the womb, I already teach you all the stories about the Jew. So the child has no chance. He can't erect any psychological defenses against your nonsense. And therefore, he perfectly grows up believing that all of the problems of the world are the Jew. The Jew is diabolical. He is a usurper. He is a devil. He, you know, he, he will corrupt your mind. He will corrupt your society. And that's precisely why you have to get to children at a very young age. That's why religions work so well. If I'm born in Mecca, I will believe all the stories about Islam. If I'm born in Rome, I'll believe all the stories about Jesus. If I'm born in Jerusalem, I'll believe all the stories in Judaism and the parting of the Red Sea. That's why religion requires me to be able to brainwash you straight out of your mother's womb. And so is it any surprise that if you teach children, never mind when they're very young, when they then go to university, they are taught in every political science program. Here's what they're taught. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Until 1948, Jews and Muslims and Christians lived in this nirvana, beautiful peace and everybody was loved and everybody was hugging and, and dancing to John Lennon music. Then in 1948, these really mean people who are not indigenous to the land were brought in from Europe with absolutely no ancestral tie to the land. They were vicious, nasty Zionists who took the very welcoming, loving, peaceful Palestinians and have engaged in a brutal 75-year occupation and ethnic cleansing over the past 75 years. Well, if I'm taught that repeatedly everywhere I turn, then it's not going to be surprising that I'll wake up one day and say, when it comes to the battle between Israel and Palestine, one group is the oppressor, the other group is the oppressed. It's very clear the Israeli defense forces are maniacal killers. The Palestinians are absolutely nobly peaceful. Even when they kill 1,400 people and they rape them and they decapitate them, they only did it because of the brutal occupation. So the Palestinian doesn't have personal agency. Anything that he does is because the dev devilish Jew did this to him. And I'm taught that since I'm two years old. So it's not surprising that I would then hate the Israelis and the Jews. Interesting. It is just uh, very interesting. Do you do you think? Do you think? Uh, okay, uh, I grew up. Let me say it this way: I grew up as a Muslim. I was, I was consuming hatred towards Jews, even though I I never met one one day at, at that age. 
But the stories and seeing the news every day about Palestinians being um, uh, subject to ag- uh, aggression from from uh, the Jews just gave me um, more reasons to hate Jews and to to wish if they they were wiped out of uh, of the face of Earth. And even when I went to the mosque. We we cried actually sometimes we cried we did it genuinely it's not really fake uh, we 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 cried that God should should just um, help our brothers and sisters in Palestine and wipe out the, the the Jews and and kill them and get rid of them we cursed them we did everything uh, that we could uh, let me ask you this do you think religion in particular, Islam helped this hatred to be shared among many nations like Pakistan, Afghanistan, all the all the countries that had no no uh, direct um, involvement with with Israel or with the Jews. Do I have to put the microphone on to speak, or can I speak even when it's off? How does that work? I, I just, you, you need to put it on when I mute you because sometimes there is an echo just for, for, for technical okay. reasons. But you've heard me all the other times I spoke. I wasn't speaking. Of course. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, it is absolutely within the doctrines of Islam, right? It doesn't come out of magic. It doesn't come out of, uh, you know, uh, the water that you're drinking, right? You're, you know, there is an endless number of Jew hatred. I mean, as you you certainly know this, Rashid, but maybe some of our listeners don't. You know, there are two periods with Muhammad. There's the Meccan period and the Medinan period. In the Meccan period, things are a bit more gentle and peaceful. But in the Meccan period, you don't get a lot of adherents that join. Then he moves to Medina, and then the message becomes unbelievably less tolerant, and certainly so to the Jews. Uh, and at that point, of course, the religion grows uh, you know, exponentially. And of course, then the, the, the theological difficulty is, well, how can we reconcile a contradiction? If if at one place it says A, and then in the second place it says not A, well, God, God couldn't contradict himself. How could that be? Well, so that's where you have the principle of abrogation, which is that if you've got two statements that are contradictory, the later statement abrogates the earlier statement. So the the love and peace stuff, you know, you have your religion and I have mine verse, becomes abrogated by kill, 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 kill everything in sight, kill, take a break, espresso, kill some more, kill, kill, kill. And so, of course, it is in in, in the in, in the Islamic sources. You just have to read the Quran, have to read the Hadith. You have to read the Sirah, the biography of Muhammad, and you come to your own judgment. Now, a lot of times, people confuse what's in the doctrine with individual Muslims. Of course, most Muslims don't go around killing people. Of, and I don't. Of course, I don't need to be lectured about, you know, most Muslims being nice. I have probably more Muslim friends than most people will ever meet in their lives. But that says nothing about what the doctrines teach. So let me draw an analogy. In Judaism, kosher laws do not allow for the eating of pork. That's in Jewish texts. Now, that doesn't mean that if Mordechai, your Jewish friend, eats pork, he is adhering to true Judaism. He is eating pork despite the fact that he's not supposed to according to the religion. So it is 
fully inscribed and condoned in the religion that you should hate the Jew. The Jew is the eternal enemy. And as you know, Rashid, there is a famous hadith that says that, the, you know, and at the end of times, you know, the tree will, you know, where the Jew is hiding behind it will say, yeah. right? So, I mean, nothing could be clearer. I can share a million quotes from the biggest Islamic clerics at Al-Azhar University, all of whom are saying exactly what Islam thinks of the Jews. But whenever you mention any of that, some idiot will come back and say, but that's not true. My dad is Muslim and he loves Jews. So therefore, it can't be true that Yusuf Al-Karadawi, the head Sunni cleric of Al-Azhar University, must be misunderstanding Islam. It's insane. It's infuriating. People have to be honest and wake up. Well, um, just with this rise of anti-Semitism, um, I was surprised the other day. Uh, I was reading the news, and then I see Kamala Harris talking about uh, an, an initiative to to counter is Islamophobia. I thought they will bring something related to anti-Semitism because what I have seen in protests in London and Paris and Berlin and all these places, I didn't see Islamophobia there. I saw anti-Semitism. So why? Uh, I mean, it, it's... it's, it's um, mind-blowing to see that we are trying to make laws to counter Islamophobia and in a time where anti-Semitism is on the rise. Um, let me ask you this question. First of all, do you agree with the term Islamophobia? And the second is, can we compare anti-Semitism to Islamophobia? Uh, yeah, so regarding uh, what Kamala Harris did, uh, so in, in the parasitic mind, not, so my last book is on happiness, which is not what we're talking about today. We're talking about anything but happiness. But in my previous book, The Parasitic Mind, I talk about how all of these parasitic ideas were developed on university campuses and eventually they, they broke out of academia and be, you know they're everywhere in society. So at one point in the book, I talk about the, uh, the metric by which we now elevate ourselves within the hierarchy is not by meritocracy it's not the one who is smartest that gets the job it's not the professor with the best cv who gets the job it's the person who has the highest score in victimology poker victimology is the means by which we adjudicate our competitive mechanisms which of course is a terrible idea so now let's let's bring it back to islamophobia and jew hatred so kamala harris given that she is trained in all of this, uh, uh, you know, postmodernism and, you know, Marxist nonsense, oppressor, oppressed, it, the, the narrative can't be that the mean, nasty Jew is, is, the, op is the oppressed one. It has to be that Islam is the one that is the victim, right? And therefore, even when you call out a press conference to talk about supposed Jew hatred. Well, if you say that there is Jew hatred, then you might actually admit that Jews might be the victims in this case. We can't have that. So therefore, we always have to supersede the victimology story of the Jew hatred by a, quote, bigger bigotry, which is the unicorn Islamophobia. And I say unicorn because exactly to your point, 
there aren't many cases of people going around in the West causing problems to, you know, to Muslims, but there's an endless number of cases where the exact opposite is happening. I'll tell you another incredible story very, very quickly about the desire to see Islamophobia even when it doesn't exist. You ready? This is an incredible story. So at Queen's University, which is a, a very well-known university in Canada, in Ontario, in Kingston, Ontario, there was a student who decided that she wanted to demonstrate that Canadian society is unbelievably Islamophobic. I mean, it's just dangerous to be a Muslim in Canada. So what she did, she, she doesn't wear a hijab. So she wore a hijab and she wanted to then do a report for in one of her courses uh, uh, to, to, you know, to show, to, to document the amount of Islamophobia. Well, at the end of, I think she wore it, I can't remember the exact number, for maybe 18 days, she found out that people were incredibly kind, polite, sweet, and tolerant to her. So, do you think she revised her opinion and said, oh my God, I started off thinking that Canada was going to be Islamophobic, but now I've been proven wrong, as any serious, honest person would do? No, Rashid, you ready? She said that the fact that people were so nice to her was proof that they were overcompensating for her latent Islamophobia. In other words, because I have such hatred inside of me I, and I have to compensate for that, I will now be super nice to her. So even when you are very kind to the woman wearing the hijab, it turns out to be a manifestation of Islamophobia. So it's 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 a hopeless case then. No matter what you do, you are accused of Islamophobia. It, exactly right. So I'll give you another example. So I have a whole section in the parasitic mind, which I call all roads lead to bigotry. Right. So let's let's give a few other examples that don't relate to Islamophobia. If you say I am uniquely attracted to overweight women. Well, you're a bigot, Rashid, because you are fetishizing my fat body. So you're a bigot. You're objectifying me. If, on the other hand, you say, I am uniquely unattracted to fat women, well, you're a fattest pig. So if I am uniquely attracted to fat women, I'm a pig. And if I'm uniquely unattracted to fat women, I'm a pig. All roads lead to me being a pig. So what's the solution in this case? What should we do? Well, the, the, well, my my small part of the solution is to exactly accept the your the invitation to come on your spaces and on Joe Rogan and write best-selling books because the only way you can counter bad ideas is to hopefully offer people better ideas, to offer people critical thinking abilities. But that's yes. why by the way, I've recently been very very somber and very pessimistic. You might have noticed that some of the tone of my tweets recently has been a lot darker. Usually I'm happy and playful and I joke around. And the reason why I'm feeling very pessimistic is because, you know, the first problem, the first step to recognizing a problem, as the saying goes, is to, I mean, is to recognize that you have a problem. If you, if you want to solve your alcoholism, you better first admit that you're alcoholic. So imagine when the West not only doesn't admit to having a problem, it doubles down on all of its policies that led to its problem. So it's a hopeless case, I'm afraid.
Okay, let me let me ask you another question related to um, the rise of antisemitism. Um, yeah, um, I'm trying to mute your mic. <laughs> uh, the narrative that we talked about from the beginning. Uh, I'm going to give some some. Uh, I know that uh, Dr. Gad doesn't have a lot of time, but uh, we have one hour. I think we will finish in half an hour. I will give some some people a chance to ask um, some questions, um, a few of them. And um, But let me first finish the questions that I have for him, and then we can take it from there. Um, so the question I have for you, the narrative, the pro-Palestinian narrative, the, the pro-Arab Islamic narrative, um, however you want to call it, is the dominant narrative now on social media. Why? Jews fail to to put their own narrative and 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 make people listen to them and hear their side of the story and and understand where they came from. Why the relevant dominant narrative is the pro-Arab Islamic uh, Palestinian narrative? Thank you. Uh, look, there are several reasons for it, but the most fundamental and obvious one is that it's a question of numbers, right? There are, I mean, never mind all of the Westerners who have been parasitized by the false narrative. If you just look at how many Muslims are there on, on earth and how many Jews are there, there are 15 million Jews. There are, you know, 1.7, 1.8, 2 billion, depending on the count, Muslims. About one fourth of humanity is Muslim. There are 15 million Jews. So if we both stand up from the top of the mountain and screen each of our positions, whose voice is going to be heard louder, right? Now, I can try to combat your louder voice by hopefully offering you a correct narrative, by offering you, uh, you know, a set of uh, information that hopefully will convince you. But my voice is drowned by the endless number of voices, whether they're bots or they're trolls or they're organized, you know, tr troll. I don't, I mean, every time I post something, even if it has nothing to do with Islam, if I say, I love my children, you're a piece of shit, Jew, you should be killed. Don't you know that Gaza has children that are dying? You're posting that you love your children when Gazan children have died. So, so it's just a question of numbers and who has the larger amplification of their voice. So that's why I talk about at various points about demography is destiny, right? The reality is if you allow into your culture people who don't share your foundational cultural values, it's only a matter of time when the numbers overpower you, whether it be on social media, whether it be in the classroom, whether it be in the size of the protests on the street, you're going to lose the battle because the numbers are against you. It's as simple as that, Rashid. Well, uh, let me ask you this, since since that's the case, I mean, I would understand it if with with uh, if it happens with normal people, like the, the, the average person, but it's happening also in the academia and in, in, uh, among professors, among people who, who are smart and, and, and they, they should know this is a fallacy. We're not appealing to popularity. We're not appealing to the crowds. We are, we're appealing to reason and history and, and, and um, uh, arguments, sound arguments, but I don't see that. I, I see them following the crowds. Uh, so I'm, I'm here as a professor of 30 years who's reached 
you know, quite a, uh, if I may say, a, a distinguished level in academia, I'm here to tell you with all humility that some of the absolute most degenerate and dumbest people are professors, right? So the fact that you have a PhD in chemistry or in women's studies does not in any way imply that you're necessarily smarter than the average uh, truck driver, okay? As a matter of fact, every single one of the parasitic ideas that I talk about in the parasitic mind was originally spawned on a university campus, right? And so to paraphrase George Orwell, it takes intellectuals to come up with some of the dumbest ideas. So it doesn't surprise me that the academics are falling prey to the false narrative, right? I mean, and, and, and by the way, I didn't make myself a lot of friends in academia by saying that most of my colleagues are complete imbeciles, but that's the reality, right? Uh, now, there are several reasons for that. One of the reasons is because most academics exist in a rarefied intellectual world where their ideas are perfectly decoupled from real consequences, right? So, so they can pontificate all sorts of nonsense without ever having the autocorrective mechanism of reality slapping them in their face, right? So, but now to show you the extent to which people can be parasitized, right? Never mind Israel versus Palestine. A gynecologist is someone who specializes in female anatomy, in, in medicine, right? A, a, an obstetrician is someone who specializes in the reproductive medicine of biological females. Would it surprise you to hear that I've had heated arguments with gynecologists where I said, are you insane? Are you really saying that men can menstruate? Are you really saying that men can bear children? And gynecologists said, yes, they can. That's precisely why I said that it's a parasitic framework, right? Because let me explain to your audience why I use the neuroparasitic framework. So if you take, for example, the wood cricket, the wood cricket hates water. It doesn't want to swim in water. But when its brain is parasitized by a neuroparasite called a hairworm, the hairworm needs the cricket to jump in water and kill itself because the hairworm could only complete its reproductive cycle in water. And therefore, to the detriment of the cricket, it is willing to commit suicide in, in order to suit the interests of its parasite. That's exactly what happens to all of those academics. They're fully, completely ideologically parasitized. And that's why we have groups like Queers for Palestine. What do you think happens to queer people in Gaza? But that's the world we live in, Rashid. My son said uh, it sounds like uh, chicken for KFC. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, I just want to say um, something about uh, the situation. Uh, I mean, what's happening now in the Middle East and, and, and the, the war. What's your take on the war? What, how do you see it as a Jew? Um, give me your angle. Uh, I, I really do understand when, you know, endless people who are innocent 
are ultimately ending up being, you know, innocent collateral. Uh, and so I, I get that, right? I mean, the, the four-year-old Palestinian kid who ends up being killed because, the you know, Israel has to bomb some Hamas installation that's hiding behind a mosque or a hospital, that kid, I mourn for them because I'm, I actually am... A, I'm driven by a universal moral calculus. My 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 pain doesn't only apply to seeing a Jewish kid killed. As a matter of fact, I often tell the story of the famous. Maybe some of your viewers have watched this, and I watched it, and I was traumatized by it. There's a famous clip of about 1,500 young Muslim men in a lineup being lined up at the border of the Euphrates River, one by one. As, as ISIS is putting a bullet in their head, right? Now, I saw that clip and I was absolutely haunted by it for, for probably a week. And I was angry and I was filled with rage. I didn't care that those 1,500 men were Muslim. I didn't say, oh, who cares? They're, they're young Muslim men, so, so what if they die? I was angry because my moral calculus doesn't only apply to someone who is of my tribe or of my religion. So I get the fact that when Israel goes in now and starts bombing these places, an, an incredible number of innocent people are going to uh, lose their lives and they can never be returned. And it's a gargantuan tragedy. So I get that. But what's the alternative, right? What else can you do? Can you sit around and say, hey, you can take a shot at raping and decapitating 1,400 people. And given that you exist in an environment that is very populated and you hide behind innocent people, we're not going to retaliate or we're only going to go in and only identify singularly only the Hamas killers and no one else. So you really are stuck in a between a rock and a hard place. And so I understand the anger that people feel at seeing the the size of the brutal you know rebuttal but uh, i also understand that israel was forced into this position right i mean on october 6 israel didn't do anything nothing would have happened we could have spent another 100 years and no one would have ever been killed so this is when i talk about the amnesia of causality somehow people who go on the street and say look at how evil the israelis are they forget what started this thing, right? If October 7th doesn't happen, none of this happens. And so, yes, I mourn the loss of any innocent, but I understand why they're doing it. Well, some people will, will, will go even back to history and will say it didn't start October 7th. It started in 1948. So they, they want to counter that argument with saying, like, Israel started it, the Jews started it, so this is just a reaction, even October 7th, it's just a, a reaction to what has uh, happened in the past. Yes, but here's the thing. Every single millimeter of land that exists today, anywhere on Earth, if we do a forensic accounting of it, then it needs to be returned to someone else. You know what that's called? It's called history, right? So, the, the field of history exists to document shifting of ownership of lands, every single land, right? So I, as a matter of fact, in the parasitic mind, I say that Saudi Arabia needs to give back to the Arabian Jews the land because they were exterminated when Muhammad came in, Khaybar, Khaybar, Ya Yahud, right? So, so 
that makes no sense, right? My own house in Beirut was stolen by Palestinians. But I didn't then go on for the rest of my life saying I hate Palestinians. I want to get uh, revenge on Palestinians. It's tragic. It's bad. Horrible things happened to me as a child. Horrible things happened to my parents when they were kidnapped by Fatah. It's tragic. It's part of our history. But you know how we get revenge? By living a dignified life, by living a meaningful life, by living a life that will hopefully benefit others. Yes, it's part of my history, whatever I went through, but I have overcome my history. I don't sit for the next 75 years and say, you know what? It's not fair. We try to exterminate you, but we lose. Therefore, boo-hoo-hoo, the clock has to go back in history until when I say it goes back. If we play that game, well, the Jews were there way before Palestinians ever existed anywhere, way before Islam ever existed anywhere. But that's not how you adjudicate historical realities. You deal with it, you move on, and you build a better future. I did it, my family did it, it's time for the Palestinians to do it as well. Well, uh, uh, you know that um, Islamic groups like Hamas and others and Iran and Hezbollah and all these, they succeeded to link the, the struggle with, with religion. So now it's about Al-Aqsa, it's about the holy side, it's about Jews against Muslims, it's about the end times. When uh, the the Hermagedon uh, war is going to be uh, carried against Jews and they will hide behind the tree and the stone and all of that is together. Now, when you talk to any Muslim, any Arab, that's all, almost the narrative is, is like we will we will win this war. And I see it also in Palestinians. There is a cycle. I don't know how are we going to break that cycle. It's it's uh, one generation uh, gives birth to another generation, and they are competing who is going to have more children to give for martyrdom. So, uh, as a psychologist, how how do you think we can break that cycle of violence going from one generation to another? Uh, so, I don't think it's an easy thing to do, but the the solution is very simple. Your definition of who you are cannot be defined contra the hatred of another group, right? So, for example, if I say I am a Lionel Messi fan and I want to belong to the Lionel Messi club. So everybody who comes to this club shares a common love and admiration for Lionel Messi. And okay, in this case, it's great. What if we create another group called it's the... Jew hatred club, okay? Well, the only way you can resolve the problems of that group is that the definition of what constitutes belongingness to that group cannot be defined based on Jew hatred. And so I don't know what the mechanism is. If, if I knew the mechanism, then I should win several Nobel Prizes. But it has to be that Islamic society rejects that narrative. So you can, there is an endless number of things that one can be proud of in terms of Muslim culture, in terms of architecture, in terms of science in the past, in terms of philosophy, in terms of poetry, in terms of 
norms of reciprocity, right? Arabic culture has a beautiful culture of generosity and hospitality, right? So there is an endless number of ways by which I can be proud in my Islamic or my Arabic culture. I am Arabic, right? I'm, I, I, when people ask me, what are you? I don't say, first, I'm Jewish. I say, first, I'm Lebanese. I speak Arabic. I listen to Arabic music. I eat Arabic food, right? But my identity of being Lebanese doesn't include hating the Muslim. It doesn't include hating the Arab. On the contrary, I love when I walk into a room and I start speaking with everybody Arabic and they immediately view me as their brother, even though they know I'm Jewish because we're all speaking Arabic. So what, what Islam has to do, where, what Arabs have to do is find a way to disassociate their identity from Jew hatred. If they can do that, there will be an explosion of richness in the Middle East that makes the oil richness seem like nothing. Imagine with all of the creativity, with all of the rich historical background that the Middle East has, what we can do with tourism, turning, you know, you could turn Gaza into the next Silicon Valley the way Israel has. So there is such human capital there, but it's always crushed by this hatred towards the Jew. Get rid of that, and it's going to be an unbelievable place to, to, to live. I want to ask another question about uh, immigration. Do you think immigration to the West um, helped the spread of Jewish hatred, brought the problems of the Middle East to the West? I'm sure a um, long time ago, probably uh, it was safer to be in North America than to be in the Middle East, but now I think it's changing. You can be probably safer in United Arab Emirates than in Montreal in Canada. So do, do, do you think things are shifting, are moving because of immigration? I mean, 100,000%. I've been screaming this for 25 years. Okay, so let's, let's, let me draw an analogy, okay? When every day when you make certain decisions, if you want to lose weight... So I can exercise a bit more, I could eat healthier, and at the end of the day, I'm going to weigh myself with a very, very delicate uh, weight uh, scale that can really measure how much my weight has changed, down to three decimal points. Only one of three things can happen every day, Rashid, and I'm going to link it to your immigration in a second. I'm drawing an analogy. At the end of every day, I could either have put on weight, my weight could have exactly stayed the same, or I could have lost weight. There is no other possibility. There's only three possible events when it comes to the trajectory of my weight. Okay, now let's apply that to your immigration question. If I let in one million people into my country, and those million people come from societies where based on non-partisan surveys, non-partisan data collection, those societies have, you're ready, you're all sitting down, they have 95 to 99% Jew hatred. So again, let me explain what that means for someone who doesn't understand what I'm saying. 10% Jew hatred would be, I sampled a thousand people and 10% of those had negative views of views, uh, negative views of the Jews. You're getting 95 to 99% 
horrifying views of the Jew when you sample people from those societies. So now if I let in one million people into Canada, now let's apply the three states of the world model. Do you need to be a fancy professor to know whether it's going to lead to increased Jew hatred, no change in Jew hatred, or decreased Jew hatred? So now Justin Trudeau says, hey, Syrian war, let's let in 50,000 Syrians. I say, uh-oh. Okay, now let's let in 70,000 this. I say, uh-oh. Well, guess what? By, and by the way, I don't need to be lectured about the importance of immigration. I am an immigrant to Canada. But when I came to Canada, I didn't come with values that were perfectly antithetical to the Canadian values. I said, thank God Canada's let me, let me in and let me now work hard to be an honorable citizen in Canada so that Canada could be proud and happy that they let me in. I didn't come in and the first thing I said is death to Jews, let's kill homosexuals, let's do this, right? Now, of course, it doesn't mean that every single person from those societies is a bad person, but we are a product of our culture. We are a product of our socialization. We are a culture of what our parents teach us and our imam and our rabbi and our priest. So it's not surprising that if you let in people that are coming from societies that are defined endemically by their Jew hatred, that after 20, 30, 40 years of open border policies, you're going to have problems with Jews in those societies. We've seen it in Sweden. We've seen it in Denmark. We've seen it in France. We've seen it in England. We're seeing it in Canada. I'll, I'll tell you a very, very quick story. Earlier, I said the story about the, my mother putting the, uh, the, 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 the pendant around my neck with the Star of David when we left uh, Lebanese airspace. A few, I've mentioned this story now a few times on several shows because it only happened in the last two weeks. My wife and son came to pick me up at a cafe where I was working on my laptop. My, my son had just gone to play a soccer match in the east end of the city. And when we walked into the car, he said, Daddy, if you were where I just played soccer and you were wearing a Star of David, you'd be dead. He didn't say this in Yemen. He didn't say this in Cairo. He didn't say this in Raqqa, Syria, under ISIS. He said it in Montreal, Canada. So, no, it's not at all surprising that if you let in people that define themselves via their Jew hatred, that you're going to have increased Jew hatred in these societies. It's, it's as clear as ABC. What puzzles me, um, I did a book in Arabic, but I didn't translate it into English um, about Islam being a tribal religion because it was born as, uh, in a tribal environment background so everything is about the tribe if you leave the tribe you get killed if the 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 customs of the tribe are holy everything is about the tribe now the ummah the the the, the nation of islam wherever it is doesn't recognize uh, nationalism uh, so wherever you are in canada in america in 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 england you are a part of this big tribe and i see people protesting against Israel while, for example, in L.A., and Americans are kidnapped by Hamas, the same people they are defending, and Americans got killed by Hamas, but they are not defending their American citizens. They are defending the aggressor. The same thing applies to Canada. The same thing applies to France. Those people, they got the citizenship. They gave an oath to, to, to be loyal to that country, 
and to honor its citizenship. But in the same time, the I see they are doing the opposite. They just took advantage of that citizenship, but they are they are loyal to their tribe. How, what do you think about that? Well, you're you're exactly spot on. You're you're exactly right. Uh, that's why the ummah is such an important. Uh, concept in Islam. It doesn't matter if I'm Canadian, uh, Palestinian, or I'm Canadian, Yemeni. Ultimately, my my top allegiance is to the Ummah, to the nation of Islam. Uh, you probably know this, uh, Rashid, but uh, I, I can't remember if it was in a intercepted FBI document. I don't remember the exact source, but uh, the playbook of the Muslim Brotherhood and, and fellow uh, Islamists has been a three-step process, to your point. Number one, they said that we will conquer the West through the womb of our women, right? Meaning uh, by higher fertility. We will conquer the West through hijra. Hijra is, you know, your open door immigration policy. And we will conquer the West by using your miserable freedoms against you. But that's exactly what's happening. I mean, if they tell you that, openly, then maybe you should listen to them. Now, again, I hate to have to say, but of course, most Muslims are nice. And of course, I'm talking about an ideology, not people. Of course, that's true. But does Islam contain certain tenets that are deeply antithetical to the Western tradition? Only a fool or a a diabolical liar would argue otherwise. I mean, take here's an example, which I discuss in the parasitic mind. Sharia law recognizes that the severity of a punishment of a crime depends on the identity of the perpetrator and on the victim. So if a Muslim man kills a Jewish man, that's not the same penalty if it's vice versa. It's codified. I could show you the entire quote, reliance of the traveler and so on, the, 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 the kind of the codified Sharia law, right? Well, that's not consistent with American jurisprudence where just lady justice should be blind. So on endless number of key values, Islam is inconsistent with Western values. And so the West is going to have to decide. Yes, of course, freedom of religion is lovely. Freedom of conscience is lovely. But at what point do some of the elements in your religion infringe on my rights to exist? Should I be quiet and tolerate when at the mosque 200 meters from my house, there is a prayer that says, oh God, oh God, why do you hate us so much? When can we get rid of the vermin Jews? I should tolerate that because that's your religion? I don't think so. Well, thank you. I, I just have a request. Um, uh, if you can give us more time so I can move to the speakers. Um, Please. I, think uh, I, mean, I can stay probably for another 15 minutes if that's okay with you because I don't have okay. kids. That's that's fine. That's that's very generous of you. Uh, let me take Yehuda. Yehuda, um, uh, go ahead. Thanks so much. Gad, Gad, Gad has an accomplishment that he might not realize. And maybe if you message me offline, I, I think my cousins are related to you. But the accomplishment that he has is before Gad Saad became well known, every time a Lebanese Jew met someone and said, what are you? And they said, I'm a Lebanese Jew. The person would say, which parents Lebanese and which parents Jewish? And then Gad came along and fixed it for all of us. So thanks for that, Gad. Number, that's the... Thank you. 
Yeah. Um, so uh, I got the question. Okay, go yeah, ahead. So I was just saying, I guess you're learning how to use the mic. That's all. All right. So here's the thing for anti-Semitism. When it comes to Mizrahi or Levantine or Middle Eastern Jews, there, when you talk about the rise of anti-Semitism, I kind of want to circle back to that, Gad. Um, it's one of the common refrains, and it's something that Eastern or Mediterranean Jews have a big problem with, and that is before the state of Israel, it was rainbows and butterflies, and you Jews loved us. And it was a great time, and we treated you great. And most Jews from Lebanon and Syria and Egypt and Morocco, not Morocco as much, but would say, like, what are you people talking about? Our existence was, we, we, we measure time by when the last time our grandfather was kidnapped by a local militia and ransomed off. Um, now that you have the prominence and you can speak, you know, a lot of Lebanese Jews look up to you. I'm not going to lie, God. Um, do, how do you rebut? Like, how do you rebut this? Is this like, do people think you're lying? Uh, this is just, you know, haki balash, like no one buys it. I'd love to hear your take on it because you've really been a voice to so many, I hate to say it, Lebanese Jews or Syrian Jews or whatever. Thanks, God. And if you could send me a message, I can't message you. I'd like to give you a last name and see if it's uh, true about the relation. Thanks so much, God. Thank you for those questions and for your kind words. Uh, look, the people who are unwilling to hear the truth, uh, they're impenetrable, right? But if people are willing to, you know, engage you honestly and at least hear what you have to say, then I would be very quick to say exactly what you mentioned, Yehuda, which is it was hardly rainbows and butterflies and candy, right? The, 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 the psychology, so here I'm going to introduce a term that Brother Rashid might know, but some of our listeners may not know. In 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 Islamic uh, doctrines, there's the concept of the dimmi, right? The dimmi is someone who is yeah. tolerated in Islamic lands, right? So shut up, be quiet, be pretty, and wake up every morning thankful that we didn't yet rape your daughters and that we're tolerating your existence. As a matter of fact, of course, in the in the doctrines themselves you pay a jizya, which is a protection tax, task, tax. So I should be thankful when I'm a Lebanese Jew or a Yemeni Jew or an Egyptian Jew or a Syrian Jew that my much larger in number Muslims are tolerating my existence. Look how nice we are. You've had a chance to live till you're 30 and we haven't yet raped any of your daughters. So kiss my hand, pretty Jew boy. That's this dynamic so the good Jew in the Middle East is one, well, of course, the good Jew is one who's dead. But if we're going to be nice and not kill you, then always appreciate that if you're existing, it's because of our, the kindness of our heart. Well, guess what? I don't want to kiss your hand because you were kind enough to not kill me. Look at my situation in Lebanon. Everything was rosy until it wasn't rosy, right? Look at my brother-in-law's family in Alexandria, Egypt. They're Egyptian Jews. Everything was great until they had to put on their running shoes and run really fast and get away. Look what happened to my Syrian ancestors. Everything was fine in Syria until they had to quickly run away, right? Look at what happened to my wife's family in the Turkish genocide, Armenian genocide. So, History doesn't lie, right? There is 1,400 years of eradication of minorities in Islamic lands. Now, that doesn't mean that the killing happens every day, all day. It is true that in Andalusia, there was a period where Muslims, Jews, and Christians coexisted. But even in Andalusia, don't think that we were 
equal partners. Jews knew their place, and their place was never higher than that of their co-Muslim you know, uh, people. And so uh, it's just out of ignorance that people say, oh, before 1948, Jews and, you know, lived in Arab lands. Even Maimonides, right? One of the biggest Jewish philosophers and a rabbi and a personal physician to the Sultan had remarked about how rough it is to be a Jew. He was an Arabic speaker, right? He was like me. He's a Mizrahi Jew, Maimonides, right? And yet he also recognized that, you know, you, you were always on borrowed time in Jew. You were living until you were no longer living. It's kind of like a guy who's about to have a heart attack. He's walking merrily and then the heart attack strikes. That's the existence of the minority in Islamic lands. That's not how anybody who has dignity should live. I don't need to kiss your hand because you tolerated me and you gave me another day to live. And also, like, they failed to mention many massacres that happened in the Muslim world for Jews uh, uh, all along history. For example, um, just recent history in, 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 uh, in Iraq, the Farhud massacre, and also in Hebron, Hebron massacre in 1929, I think, uh, before the establishment of Israel as a state, in, in Morocco, also, uh, people talk about peaceful times. Yes, we had peaceful times, but also we had some very uh, problematic times for, for Jews uh, through history. And when Israel was, was founded as a state, uh, Arab countries, they kicked out uh, around 850,000 Jews because uh, a crime of association. Some Jews had a state in Israel, then you pay for it. It's, it's the same thing that's happening today. If, if there is a war between Israel and Palestinians, you pay for it, even if you are living in Montreal and probably you, are, you have nothing to do with, with that war. You are just watching the news like everybody else. But still, you pay for it because you are related to them. So let, let, let's go uh, to uh, another speaker, Lebanese. I think I'm, I'm trying to go by who raised his hand first. Um, Lebanese, go ahead. Hey, good evening, everyone. Uh, and thank you, Brazil Rashid, and for uh, Dr. Gad for being here. It's uh, I'm really excited to be here uh, with you, Dr. Gad, uh, because uh, before the 7th of October, uh, I, I started reading your book, uh, The Parasitic Mind. And uh, I had to stop at some point uh, at uh, when uh, the 7th of October massacre happened. Uh, to look to the news and to listen for what was happening. Uh, because uh, even uh, a little bit of uh, what happened, I lost a friend who I had the opportunity to meet him on social media at some point, who was uh, killed in cold blood uh, by those, uh, I don't know what to call them at some point. And uh, another friend who was uh, kidnapped, who is kidnapped to Gaza right now, and just uh, for myself, I'm not Jewish, but I I was Christian. I used to listen to uh, to hear uh, Brother Rashid uh, when I was Christian, and now I'm trying only to be the person who is a friend for the Jewish people. So uh, a little bit of uh, how uh, I arrived to this point because. Uh, 
in some point uh, I get out from Lebanon and uh, I met other people. I arrived to the point where I met a Jewish person. My first reaction was what to do? Should I bring this kind of hatred who we learned in Lebanon, which I learned from Lebanon, even though that I wasn't uh, Muslim, but we learned it, we took it, we got brainwashed. We forgot like uh, 3,000 plus years of history between uh, us Lebanese, whatever uh, we are, and with the Jewish people, which we had uh, amazing uh, history, which is written between the Bible, uh, Tanakh, uh, Torah, and everywhere else. And I arrived to the point where I asked myself, should I bring the hatred which I learned it from Lebanon or to learn from the Jewish people, to see what will gather us uh, in some point or what we can do. So I broke this barrier and I said, no, I want to learn. And I want to know why I should hate this person, why I learned to hate this person. Then I came to the realization that no, I'm with my family in some point with the Jewish people. So my question for you, Dr. Gard, uh, what we can do more to break this barrier? Because I don't think that everyone can come to the place where I learned to know, to pass this unknown fear, to, to learn and to speak with what I don't know. And if you can uh, give us uh, how to break this barrier, uh, it will be grateful. And uh, yeah, thank that's you. it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you for those words. And I'm, I'm glad that you were able to escape the, the brainwashing. Look, uh, again, there's no magic recipe. I think one of the ways that you break through that demonization is to get to know the people who that, that are being demonized. And I'll tell you a great, a quick, great story uh, it's called now, because I've, I've said it in a few places, it's called the, the Juju story. And you'll see in a second why it's called the Juju story. So many of you are now seeing about the, uh, the incredible uh, anti-Semitic stuff that's happening at Cornell University. Now, that was problematic for me on two fronts. First of all, of course, because I'm Jewish. But second of all, because I got my master's of science and my PhD at Cornell University. So I wasn't very pleased to see my alma mater being at the center of all of this incredible Jew hatred. Now in 1990, I began my PhD at Cornell. And because I'm Lebanese, I became friends with a bunch of Arabic guys, most of them were Lebanese, and we would often play soccer together and you know, hang out and it was, it was all good. And one day, one of those guys invited me out for coffee. Uh, and I said, okay, yeah, sure, let's go. So we went out for coffee. And at one point we were sitting around and he looked at me and he said, you know, God, I really like you. And I looked at him and I said, I mean, I'll say his first name and I, out of respect, I won't say his whole name, although maybe he doesn't deserve that respect. Uh, I said, uh, Omar, why, why are you saying this as though you're surprised that you like me? Oh, I know. Is it because I'm Jewish? So he looked at me and he said, no, but come on, God, you're not a Jew, Jew. I said, no, 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 Omar, I'm a Jew, 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 Jew. He said, no, 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 but come on, you know what I mean. You're not a, you're not a Jew, Jew. So what happened there, he had a complete conundrum in his brain. 
right? Because he's been taught straight out of his mother. When his mother fed him milk, she didn't feed him milk. She fed him, she fed him Jew hatred. And the Jew is diabolical. And if you look very closely, there is horns that are growing in the forehead of the Jew. And if you look, there is also a tail that comes out of him because he's not really human. He's subhuman. But then he meets a Jew who's actually Arabic. He meets a Jew who's super fun. He meets a Jew who's a better soccer player than all of them combined. They're all fighting between them to see which of those Arab guys is going to have the Jew on his team because then his team would win. Now, that violates all the stereotype of the weak, the diabolical, the scheming, the frugal, the manipulative Jew. So when he says, you know, God, I like you, he's surprised. Now, the only way he can reconcile him liking me is by removing that I'm really a Jew. I mean, you're not a Jew, Jew, God, right? So why do I tell that story? It's an incredibly powerful story because ultimately, I don't know if I was successful in eradicating the hatred in his heart for the rest of his life, but for a moment, I was able to get through to him. I was able to show him that, no, don't fall for the stereotype. They are nice Muslims <laughs> and mean Muslims, nice Jews and mean Jews. So yeah. the, only, the only recipe is for people to hang out together so that we can break these stupid stereotypes. Uh, uh, you reminded me of a little story in Morocco. Uh, one, one time, I think in 2000, uh, I, I don't know, it was a conflict like this, but not as big as this between Palestinians and Israel and then some some people started insulting and attacking some Jews, remnants of Jews in Morocco. There are probably a few hundreds left. And because they are merchants uh, next to each other. So uh, a Muslim wanted to go apologize to his friend who is a Jew next to him at the store next to him. So he went to him and he said, I apologize for what happened. And these guys were insulting you over everything you know. We are the Jews, not you guys. So he's, he tried to compliment him, but the way he said it, it's like still the word Jew is, is an insult. So he said, we are the Jews, not you. <laughs> anyway, let's go to Kat. Uh, go ahead, Kat. Hi, Dr. Gad. Thank you so much for taking the time. A fellow Canadian here. I'm just wondering, um, what, how do you think we can get through to the people that seem completely taken over by the parasitic ideas um, who who support the people marching in the streets who uh, chant the slogans of um, uh, of the death slogans in our Canadian streets how how can we um, how can we reach the people that seem completely lost uh, and and seem completely brainwashed and seem completely what I what I call to be taken over by um, the IDS, the Israel derangement syndrome. Um, what can we do as Canadians to to fight that here on our home in our homeland? Thank you for that. Uh, number one, there has to be an immediate rethinking of immigration policies so that the the foundational Canadian values that we hold dear will not be eradicated when the numbers shift in a in a, in a dangerous uh, already. So I remember a few years ago, uh, someone had said that the day when in a city uh, Muslims outnumber Jews by a certain ratio, it's all over. 
Well, in Montreal, we're already there, right? So that's why when you go to the synagogue now, there has to be protection. That's why when God said 21st century in Quebec, I go to my university, which is a university that unfortunately is known as a hotbed of some of this Jew hatred. If some of you may remember that in 2002, Benjamin Netanyahu, who was then also the prime minister, was stopped from speaking at Concordia University. So I now have to go with security. And, you know, I'm hardly an incendiary person. I speak in a measured manner, in a rational manner. I'm professorial. You know, I'm fun. I'm, I'm loving. And yet there is enough danger on me that in the 21st century, I have to go on campus with protection and I have to file reports with the Montreal police and so on. That's not a good sign. So number one, immigration policy has to change so that you absolutely make sure that the numbers don't become so tilted that eventually in 50 years, 100 years, you will lose your society. There's 1,400 years of evidence to support that. And there is no reason to think that Canada or Sweden or France or anywhere won't fall by the wayside in the exact same way. By the way, it, it, the Islamization of a society doesn't always happen through force. In many cases, it is through force. But there are many, many strategies by which a society that started at day one with zero Islam, a hundred years later becomes 100% Islam. How does that happen magically? Okay. So again, nothing could be clearer. In terms of what can you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, listen, we're all here in this spaces. Already that is showing that a bunch of us have decided that it is worth our time to sit down and have this conversation. So you have to take that instinct and apply it everywhere. When it comes time to voting, vote properly. When it comes time to seeing that your children are being brainwashed at school, Involve yourself and contact the principal. So I'll give you an example. A few years ago, when my uh, daughter was still in elementary school, I found out that uh, the science teacher had a BLM uh, avatar as part of her email. I contacted the principal. I didn't do, hi, I am Professor Gatsad, famous professor. I'm, I'm just a concerned parent. I said, look, uh, I do happen to be a professor, and I make sure that when I'm in my classes, I never let any political ideology come into my class. When I am teaching about evolutionary psychology, I don't start talking about what I think about BLM or about Justin Trudeau. There is a place and time for everything. When I'm a professor and I'm mandated to teach a certain course, that's all that I do. So therefore, I don't appreciate when you're... Uh, teacher is putting BLM on her avatar. And by the way, do you know what BLM stands for? And so I engaged her. Guess what? Within a day, that BLM avatar was gone. I could have easily said, well, who cares? It's just an avatar, right? So the, re the reason why these ideas are able to proliferate is because there isn't enough of a counterforce that fights against them because people, regrettably, are unbelievably cowardly. I've always said that we need to add us an eighth deadly sin to the seven already existing, and that's cowardice. Most people, if you go boo, they go hide in the closet, right? Well, you have to lose that reflex because no war, whether it be a physical war or an ideological war, doesn't come with some costs. So 
the fact that I have to go into the university not knowing whether somebody's going to knife me or not, that is a cost that I say I'm willing to bear because I want to protect your children and mine to have a better future. So just speak out, get engaged, activate your inner honey badger, and hopefully we can turn the tide. Thank you, Dr. Ged. Um, I'll take the last question from Miguel. Miguel, go ahead. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Miguel from Dominican Republic. And I have a question for uh, Dr. Sad, but first let me let, let me thank you, um, Brother Rashid, for your for your Twitter account, for your ex account. Uh, it's been it's been really helpful for me. Uh, not only that, maybe maybe you don't you haven't noticed it, but I have translated many of your of your tweets in Spanish. And you have no idea how many insults I'm getting in your name, okay? <laughs> so in the <laughs> welcome to the club. A lot of them. <laughs> and second to Dr. Gad, is it, it, it's, it's always I know, a privilege to hear you. Let me structure my question because it's a little bit complicated. Uh, do you believe that this anti-Semitism that we are seeing today is going to get worse? worse and worse by the days in the weeks and months uh, ahead. I ask you this because even in Latin America, as you can see right now, countries like Colombia and Chile and Nicaragua and many others of them are cutting relationships with uh, Israel because one way or another, uh, free Palestine, uh, Israel has to die from the river to the sea, it's my song, it's getting irre- irrevocable marriage, uh, married to socialism, communism, and, and, and all of this. So I'm seeing that not only the anti-Semitism is, is becoming a, a force, but it's also becoming a political force for the left, for the radical left in Latin America. And my question is, I mean, this is going to get worse and worse. Even, even not only the anti-Semitism, it's, all, it's also the anti-Christianism because a lot of Christians like me and uh, hundreds of thousands others are supporting uh, the right to Israel to defend. So what, what do you see that this is going uh, in, the, in the weeks and months to come? Thank you. Thank you very much for your question. Uh, uh, well, it- If you might have noticed, uh, I put out several tweets, at least one of which went absolutely globally viral, I think 11, 12 million views a couple of weeks ago, where I was in a very somber mood, where I was, uh, 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 you know, quite surprisingly uh, dark, because I precisely recognize that which you're saying, uh, Mr. Miguel, which is that things just don't look good. And they don't look good for several related reasons. So, and, and here, uh, you know, some of you may have heard me mention this analogy. If you go to see your physician and your physician says, God forbid, you've got stage four cancer and here's what you need to do to fix it. Imagine if your response is the following. First of all, I don't believe there is such a thing called cancer. Second of all, if there is such a thing called cancer, it's the Jews that did it. Third of all, if there is a cure for cancer, the Jews are holding the cure because they want to make money through the pharmaceuticals. Fourth of all, I'm going to smoke four packs a day and I'm going to inhale a bag of asbestos because I don't believe that there is such a link with cancer. Now, what, what, what is this analogy demonstrating? Is that it's one thing to have, let's say, Jew hatred. It's another thing to have a 
ill-advised immigration policy. But it's a lot worse when you don't even recognize that there is those problems and you double down on the mechanisms that led to those problems. So that's why I became very somber because everywhere I look, you know, by disposition, I'm, I'm a fighter. I'm someone who is very happy, very optimistic. I wake up every day. All right, let's make the world a better place. But then what happened since October 7th, everywhere I turned, I saw no exit. I didn't see any exit. I didn't see the exit from leaders speaking the right way. I didn't see an exit from academics speaking the right way. I didn't see an exit from seeing the presidents of universities speaking the right way. I didn't see an exit in seeing at least the protests on the street going in the right way. So everywhere I looked, I saw only worse. So to answer your question in a long-winded way, I expect things to get a lot worse. That's why when I often tweet, I sarcastically say, oh, don't worry. There's nothing to worry about. I'm sure it will all work out. And what I'm saying there, of course, sarcastically is we are going down a horrifyingly dangerous road. Now, most people think that when I make those big pronouncements, oh, come on, you're exaggerating. You're being hyperbolic. Do you really mean it? Well, guess what? Many people today are writing to me in the thousands saying, oh, boy, I wish we would have listened to you. But they only see it as relevant when it hits them personally, right? When their daughter was threatened at Cornell, this is when I get the email, dear Dr. Saad, I should have listened to you. Because you don't have the imagination to be able to extrapolate what's coming down the road until it hits you. That's the problem. Whereas I sit from top of the mountain and I'm saying, hey guys, it doesn't take a fancy professor to know where this is going. If you're going to keep an immigration policy that allows millions of people who hate Jews, you're going to have increased Jew hatred. Does that mean that most people from those cultures are mean? Of course it doesn't mean that. But it's a game of statistics. Life is managing statistical regularities. And so you play the game at your peril. So to conclude, Mr. Miguel, it's going to get a lot worse. Buckle up, fasten your seatbelt. Dr. Shad, um, I really appreciate your time. I can listen for to you for hours, and uh, I have I have a question though. Um, I regret not asking it earlier. Uh, it's 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 related to the underdog sympathy. I would say. Do you think people sympathizing with? Palestinians has to do with the underdog because Israel is a powerful state uh, when it comes to weapons and and um, army. Uh, also, it's helped by the U.S. and Europeans. So it doesn't matter where the truth is. It just we stand with the underdog. How accurate is that? Well, there's definitely uh, some accuracy to that because it comes from the ideology of Marxism, which views the world as oppressed and oppressor. In the context of Marxism, it's in the context of socioeconomic realities, right? There's the proletariat and there's the bourgeoisie. By definition, the bourgeoisie, to the extent that they are owners, that they, are, that they own capital, they must be evil. They must have obtained this through some diabolical means. And therefore, Marxist revolution, let's go and kill all the 
bourgeoisie. And so the Marxist lens, hence the term cultural Marxism, views the entire dynamics of history through the binary lens of oppressed and oppressor. So in the context of feminism, there is the poor, hapless women and there is the evil patriarchy. Now, that's a very psychologically alluring view of the world because it simplifies things in a very clean way. There is good, there is bad, and it's very easy to see who's whom. So in the context of Palestinian, most people, by the way, are cognitive misers. That's a fancy term I use to mean basically intellectually lazy. It's simply too hard and effortful to think. So I'm going to use some shortcuts to arrive at the conclusions of the world. And so therefore, when I see in the Intifada a 15-year-old using a slingshot to, with a little rock to hit the really big, mean Jewish tank, well, it's very easy for me to say little kid with a slingshot and rock versus mean Jewish tank. Of course, the little kid is the oppressed, but that's because most people are complete degenerate idiots, right? That's why you have to educate them about what the reality is. But that's why it's almost an impossible task, because for each X spaces that I do with 300 people, I will have now a tsunami of 10,000 people who will say, oh, you're posting a picture of you eating. Do you know how many Gazans today died because of your Jewish brothers killing them? So there is no way to beat the tsunami of stupidity. So it, that's why I'm dark. But I want to leave it on a good note. I, I do think that existentially speaking, eventually goodness wins, truth wins. The regrettable part is for truth to win sometimes, it requires for many, many, many people to die. So we could have solved this problem with very few deaths. Regrettably, we will solve it in 50 years with many more deaths. We could have avoided this whole problem had we thought better. Thank you so much, Dr. Saad. I will leave it here because I respect your time. I respect my um, I, I promised you just one hour, but I went over one hour by 25 minutes. I really appreciate your time, you and I hope to see you more often. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Take care, everybody. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye.